Welcome to the 1 Peter 5 Podcast, Episode 3. On today's episode of the podcast, I fly solo. No interview guest, but we're going to talk a little bit about the increasing evil in the world, what's going on with the canonization cause for Bishop Sheen, and the out-of-control New York Archdiocese. This, Top Stories of the Week, and more, coming up next. You're listening to the One Peter Five Podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition. Hello, everyone. I want to talk to you today about fidelity. Fidelity to vocation and fidelity to God. When God calls a man to the priesthood, he calls that man to himself. He calls him to participate in Christ's priesthood. He calls him to take the church as his bride because he is Christ, altar Christus, as a priest, and Christ's bride is the church. A priest is also under obedience, though. So he does what the church prescribes. He prays the prayers that she provides. He follows the liturgical texts that she gives him. He obeys his bishop, who is his superior within the church. Lately, I've been hearing from or about priests who feel torn between their priesthood and the way it should be lived under the obedience that they owe to their bishops. Now, if bishops are living their vocation, where's the conflict, right? Both the priest and the bishop should be aligned to Christ, and so they should both be working toward the same goal and following the same divine will. But if one or another of the two is not aligned to Christ something very different happens. When a priest is not aligned to Christ, his bishop, at least, has the authority to do something about it. He can discipline him. He can remove him, if necessary, from his ministry or even take his faculties away. He can also try to find a means by which to instill in that priest anew the mission of the church to which he pledged his life when he made his vows. If a bishop, however, is not aligned with Christ, the situation becomes a lot more difficult. There's little that a priest can do. He can appeal to Rome, uh, but that's a long and arduous process and often doesn't lead to a very happy conclusion. The Pope has also now said that he doesn't want everybody with a problem in a diocese bringing that problem to Rome. It should be handled by the local ordinary by the local bishops' conference. This doesn't always work. What if most of the bishops are in agreement in their vision for the church, even if that vision is not Christ's vision? I know you may think that this sounds outlandish, but it's exactly what happened during the Arian heresy. 
the majority of the bishops in the church taught and bought into the idea that Christ was not really the divine son of God, that he was not the second person of the blessed trinity, that he was made, not begotten, before all ages, the exact opposite of what we say in the creed. St. Athanasius, who was a bishop, stood almost alone during that time. Even under excommunication, he didn't really know what was going on in Rome. He had heard, I would assume, because we've all heard it, that Pope Liberius had actually taken the side of the Arians as well, and I can only imagine what that must have made him think, because the gates of hell will not prevail, right? So, but Athanasius stood Still, he was a bishop, so he had more authority within his diocese and within his realm of, of power that was proper to his office than a priest would. Bishop Fulton Sheen was also, obviously, a bishop. But he was still beneath the authority of his cardinal, Cardinal Spellman of the Archdiocese of New York. And as the story goes, Cardinal Spellman became upset with Bishop Sheen. Very upset. And his motivations are still unclear. Some think it was jealousy, because Bishop Sheen had become such a popular figure, so representative of the diocese. Some think it was something else. In 1957, we do know that Cardinal Spellman said that Sheen's Society for the Propagation of the Faith owed the Archdiocese of New York at least a million dollars, maybe more, some say multiple millions of dollars, for food and supplies. Uh, I've seen that it was mostly powdered milk. And that the society had sent these supplies around the world to help the needy. Well, the diocese wanted to be paid back, and Cardinal Spellman, as the story goes, wanted Bishop Sheen to pay for it whether out of his own pocket from the earnings that he made from being on television, etc., or whether it was just out of the society's funds. But Sheen refused. He had raised that money from the public or gotten donations of supplies from the government, and he directed it to where it was most needed. He wasn't going to let it be snatched up and paid for and have that money be put into the coffers of New York, which had nothing to do with the work that was being done. Cardinal Spellman, though, kept escalating. The situation became so heated that Pope Pius Twelfth and even President Eisenhower got involved. When the truth of the matter came to light, and the Pope heard from the President that you know, the donations that were coming from the government were sent for that purpose, the Pope saw that Bishop Sheen was actually the one who was in the right. But Cardinal Spellman was his superior, and the Pope wisely chose, some would say unwisely, but governance is a tricky thing. He chose to remind both bishops, Sheen and Spellman, the importance of Christian forgiveness, and then he told them to go in peace with his blessing, leaving them to work it out amongst themselves. Cardinal Spellman, it is said, vowed revenge on the spot to Bishop Sheen, right to his face. And it wasn't long before Bishop Sheen found himself off the air at the height 
of the popularity of Life is Worth Living, his television show that was on ABC and drew tens of millions of viewers for every episode. Soon, Sheen also found himself unwelcome in New York's churches. Spellman canceled his annual Good Friday sermons at St. Patrick's Cathedral, and he even warned the local clergy not to make friends with Bishop Sheen. Finally, in 1966, almost a decade after the situation had begun, Bishop Sheen was reassigned to be the Bishop of Rochester, New York, which was described by some as ecclesiastical Siberia. He lost his position as the head of the Society for the Propagation of the Faith, and for a time, this genius orator was, for all intents and purposes, silenced and in exile. Now, it's always been said, or at least I've always heard, that Bishop Sheen never said a bad word to anyone about Cardinal Spellman. He even praised him in his autobiography. He accepted what was done to him, despite its injustice, with the heart of a saint. And here we are now, all this time later. And it appears... We don't yet have all the facts, but it appears that the Cardinal of the New York Archdiocese is once again serving an injustice against Bishop Sheen. Long after his death, 12 years into the cause of his canonization, just as his body was about to be moved to his home diocese of Peoria, Illinois, where he was ordained in 1919, and it's a move that I'm told was orchestrated because New York didn't want to spend the time and money pursuing his canonization. Now, the problem with anything like this is that there are rumors floating around, and it's very difficult to nail down the truth. But I have been told, more than once, that New York didn't want to pursue the canonization, and it's why Peoria has. But there's been a miracle an astonishing miracle. It's not one of these miracles that, oh, a person had a disease and then they were healed, but maybe they weren't because they relapsed. And it's, it's a clear-cut case. A baby, stillborn, whose parents had consecrated the entire pregnancy to the intercession of Bishop Sheen. He's dead for 61 minutes. Dead. No life signs. The family prays. They ask for Bishop Sheen's intercession. The baby comes back to life. Not just comes back to life, but there's no brain damage. Perfectly functional child now. Several years old, I think. I, I don't know the age, but I mean, it's still a little kid. That's what a miracle looks like. It's a Lazarus moment. So the bishop has this astonishing miracle attributed to him. And it looks like there's no more obstacles for the cause of canonization. It's going to move forward. He's on the fast track to sainthood, which any of us who've listened to his talks or watched the recordings of his television show or read his books know is appropriate. The very few men in history have had such a wide-ranging impact on Catholics of every stripe and made all of them feel that he was a saint. And 
that's how we feel about Bishop Sheen. He was a phenomenal man, and taking his advice and his teaching to heart cannot help but improve our own life of faith, our own piety, our own devotion, our own love of the Lord. But now, there are lawyers involved. The Archdiocese of New York and their official communications apparatus are saying that neither Sheen nor his family ever wanted his body to leave New York. It was in his last will and testament. He wanted to be buried there. He wanted to be, or at least he accepted the offer of being, in the crypt of St. Patrick. St. Patrick's Cathedral, where typically is reserved for the archbishops of New York. There's some evidence that has come to light that the situation has existed longer than it might appear on first glance. Somebody recently sent me a letter signed by the Chancellor of the New York Archdiocese dated in 2011. This letter reads, well, I'm going to just read it to you and you can decide what you think. So the letter starts, um, it's sent to the Diocese of Peoria regarding their decision to resume the promotion of the cause for Bishop Sheen in 2011 when they had stopped it once before, and I don't know the reasons why. It says, Dear Miss Gibson, Congratulations on the decision of the Diocese of Peoria to resume its promotion of the cause for its native son, Archbishop Fulton Sheen. As you were aware, the Archdiocese of New York was surprised when the Diocese of Peoria issued a press release last October announcing that it had dropped the cause. Although the same release quoted the Bishop of Peoria as having stated that the Archdiocese of New York might take up the cause, and although the Archdiocese received volumes of mail urging it to do so from cardinals, bishops, and faithful around the world, members of the Sheen Foundation and even the Archbishop's family, it took no explicit action in the hope that the Diocese of Peoria might reconsider its decision to resume the cause. Hence, our satisfaction and joy over the current announcement. It is my understanding that Archbishop Timothy Dolan, presently in Ireland on the apostolic visitation of seminaries by appointment of the Holy Father, has already written to express his congratulations and gratitude for the good news to Bishop Daniel Janke. Might I ask that you help clarify an unfortunate statement by the Sheen Foundation in a CAN-EWTN press release of January 29, 2011, indicating that the Archdiocese of New York had failed to fulfill a verbal promise to transfer Sheen's remains to Peoria. So this is relevant because three years ago we have a back and forth saying that there's a dispute over the transfer of remains. Quote, perhaps the foundation could be made aware of correspondence from the Archbishop Dolan to Bishop Jenke of October 23, 2010, which would clarify this regrettable and inaccurate charge by the foundation. In the aforementioned letter, the Archbishop assured the bishop that he was more than happy to continue his research into the question of the transfer of the remains, but that his study on the matter had already revealed that there was, in fact, no evidence of such verbal promise that Archbishop Sheen's last will and testament expressed a desire for burial in New York, that Archbishop Sheen had gratefully accepted Cardinal Terence Cook's invitation for interment in the crypt beneath the main altar of St. Patrick's Cathedral, traditionally reserved for its archbishops, that the Congregation for Saints had, in 2005, explicitly instructed Cardinal Edward Egan, 
then Archbishop of New York, not to transfer the remains, and that Archbishop Sheen's family was strong in its preference that his remains stay in St. Patrick's Cathedral. Thank you for whatever assistance you can give to clarify this unfortunate statement by the Foundation. Lord knows everyone wants this noble cause to progress in charity and in full vigor without any clouds hanging over it. The Archdiocese of New York remains grateful to the Diocese of Peoria for having shared its son with the Church Universal and remains eager to be of any service to the diocese that it can possibly be. So where does this leave us? I'm torn. I'm torn because the Archdiocese of New York is so tone-deaf to orthodoxy and makes such craven bureaucratic decisions and is so unfathomably politically correct, I don't know what to believe. The New York Archdiocese has issued a clarifying statement, of course, and it sounds essentially like this. Well, now that we can't move the remains to you guys in Peoria, we'll be happy to take over his cause. The legwork's done. The miracle's there. We're ready for the next step. So why not? We'll just take it over. And, you know, you guys out in the Midwest, thanks for your for your efforts. Way to go, B-team. Maybe I'm reading between the lines. And then there are back channels where we're hearing other things. Brandon Vogt, who blogs at brandonvote.com, has what he, what he terms inside info about Fulton Sheen controversy. He says that he reached out to a close friend of his who was intimately involved in the cause to see if there was more to the story than was being reported, and so on the condition of anonymity, he got some information that nobody else has. He said that his friend doesn't think Cardinal Dolan is involved in the decision directly, but he is probably following the advice of his advisors. If he's doing that on everything, he needs to fire those guys. We'll talk about that in a minute, but I want to finish on this. He said that the friend who's involved with the cause of canonization also noted that once the lawyers of New York expressed their unwillingness to open the tomb... Bishop Jenke contacted the Congregation for Saints to say that the cause was at a stopping point until the remains could be inspected. I'm reading, so I'm going to just, this is, I'm quoting. He asked for their help to get that done, but instead of offering help, they responded that they would be forced to archive the cause since it was at a stopping point, and that Peoria and New York would have to work it out amongst themselves. All of that occurred over two months ago. My friend believes that Bishop Jenke was trying to see if something could be worked out just to inspect the remains, but when New York continued to give an absolute no, he felt obligated to announce things publicly. His friend also said that he had personally seen letters from the Holy See saying that the body should be in Peoria, and also letters from the Archbishops of New York agreeing to this. He also said that Sheen did not ask to be buried in St. Patrick's Cathedral. Cardinal Cook insisted on that. He believes Sheen asked to be buried with other priests in a cemetery in the Bronx. The great majority of his remaining family is now in favor of the body and tomb being located in Peoria. Vote goes on, After hearing all of that from my friend, I was pleased to read something uplifting. 
Uh, some un- uplifting news this morning from Catholic News Agency who interviewed the postulator of the cause, Dr. Andrea Ambrosi. Dr. Ambrosi said he has been aware of the issue regarding the transfer of Archbishop Sheen's remains, but does not believe that this will be a lasting impediment. He expects that the suspension of the cause will be temporary since there are many people still committed to this cause in the beatification of Archbishop Sheen. Archbishop Sheen. So there's a lot of conflicting information here. Vote updated his post, actually. Looks like he updated it today. And he says, based on info from Thomas Reeves' biography, America's Bishop, the Life and Times of Fulton J. Sheen, it seems that Sheen did not want to be buried in St. Patrick's Cathedral, but in Calvary Cemetery in Queens. Cardinal Cook is the one who had him buried in the cathedral. Quote, on December 4th, 1979, Fulton made out his will. He asked that his funeral mass be celebrated at St. Patrick's Cathedral and that he be buried in Calvary Cemetery, the official cemetery of the Archdiocese of New York, page 358. Several family members stayed with the Cardinal Cook during these days around December 10, 1979. Joseph Sheen Jr. later recalled sitting next to Cook in the dining room when the Cardinal pointed to a painting of a bishop, no doubt Archbishop John Hughes, on the wall and said, He built it, meaning St. Patrick's Cathedral. And your uncle filled it. That's why I want him buried under the altar. Page 361. The Archdiocese of New York statement is therefore a bit misleading, says Vote, when it says, quote, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen expressly stated his desire that his remains be buried in New York, a request that was granted by Cardinal Terence Cook when he was laid to rest beside the Archbishops of New York in the crypt beneath the high altar of St. Pat- Patrick's Cathedral. So it's true, it seems, that Sheen requested to be buried in New York in the cemetery of the Archdiocese, but not in St. Patrick's. And one would argue, since he lived out his final days in New York, that that was a logical thing. But do we really believe that he would have wanted to impede the cause for his canonization. I remember Dr. Regis Martin and my many theology classes with him would say on occasion that saints are always the last people on the block to know of their own sanctity. Sort of by nature, they don't think they're the ones. So it's entirely likely that Bishop Sheen hoped for eternal salvation because that's what we do, but didn't expect that he would be raised to the altar. But a man of true humility would always submit and allow himself to be aggrandized, as it were, by the church, even if it made him personally uncomfortable because through that cult of the saints, the lives of other faithful would be informed, enriched, nourished, uplifted. So to me, this looks like politics. And it's ironic because I've had a video of Bishop Sheen featured on the front page of 1 Peter 5 for the last week or two in our featured video section. 
And he's talking about the activity of the devil in the world. And there's a section. It begins at 17 minutes and 4 seconds if you're looking at the video. But I'd like to play this section for you. It's not long. But I think it is extremely relevant. And the final temptation, which will be the temptation of the church in the next 100 years. And we have the dim beginnings of it now. Satan says theology is politics. Why bother with theology? God, the transcendent, the mystery of redemption. The only thing that matters is politics. And holding, as it were, the shiny globe of the world in his hand, Satan said, All these kingdoms are mine. Am I? And I will give them to you. If falling down, you will adore me. How often do you feel that that is the deal that's being made in the church? How many times have you seen a bishop cave to political pressure instead of standing up for the faith, for the eternal truths of God, against, in particular, these days, as sodomy becomes a nationally celebrated way of life, sins that cry out to heaven for vengeance. When I see the game of political football being played with the cause for the canonization of Bishop Sheen, I may not know everything that's going on, but I look to the character of the people involved. So on the one hand, we have Bishop Jenke of Peoria, Illinois, who has been incredibly outspoken in favor of traditional marriage and traditional values and the pro-life cause that the church has championed since it became an issue in this country in 1973. On the other hand, I have Cardinal Dolan, who publicly congratulated the coming out of a homosexual NFL player, Michael Sam, said, bravo, good for him, God bless him, I wouldn't judge, who has now <laughs> agreed to grand marshal the St. Patrick's Day parade on the first year that they will be allowing homosexuals to actively march under their own banner. And he won't do anything about it because he says it's up to the parade organizers to decide who's marching. But it's not going to stop his involvement. We have the threatened closure of Holy Innocence Church in the Garment District of New York City. The only mass, the only parish in New York City, which 
during the day swells its population to something around 20 million people. The only parish in the city that offers a daily traditional Latin Mass. A parish that was in debt and is now thriving through private donations. A parish in which the people, the parishioners, get on their hands and knees and work and scrub and make the parish shine. A parish that is thriving, that is growing, and it's under threat of closure because by some mechanism of assessment, the diocese believes it's not a viable parish. You know which parish is not under that threat? It's St. Francis, the one that holds the gay pride masses. So when I look at the Archdiocese of New York, and I see those pictures of Cardinal Dolan chumming around with President Obama at the Al Smith dinner, laughing and having a great old time with Nero himself, the greatest enemy of the Catholic faith that this country has ever experienced in a leader. And I look at the unpopularity of Bishop Jenke because he stands for what the church teaches. I can tell you which side has more credibility to me. I could be wrong on this one. I don't have all the facts. But by your fruits you shall know them. I believe Bishop Sheen was a saint. And I believe that anyone who's getting in the way of his cause for sainthood, well, I think they may be playing for the other team, whether they know it or not. St. John Chrysostom said that the floor of hell is paved with the skulls of bishops. It's a terrible authority to have, it's a terrible responsibility. But our bishops need to stand for what is true. We need them to. We need their example. They are our shepherds. How are the sheep supposed to stand for what is true and what is good and what is right if our shepherds and our leaders refuse to do so? What are we supposed to do? How does a child learn how to be a man if his father doesn't teach him? If his father is abusive, what behavior do you think he will exhibit in his own marriage and relationship with his children? And that brings us to another issue related to all of this, which is the issue of Monsignor Charles Pope from the Archdiocese of Washington. And this week, Monsignor Pope wrote a blog post about the debauchery of the St. Patrick's Day Parade, about the fake compromise that we give witness to when men like Cardinal Dolan, he didn't name him, participate in the Al Smith dinner where the Republicans and Democrats get together and pretend like we are not ideological enemies over fundamental issues. He wrote the post... And it was a scorcher because it 
called us to penance and to authentic Catholic living. And so when the news outlet, the social media news outlet BuzzFeed contacted the Washington Archdiocese to ask, what's the story on this post? Pretty countercultural. Suddenly the, the post disappeared. The diocese took it down. Fortunately, BuzzFeed kept a copy, and I'm going to read it to you right now. I want you to listen to this, and I want you to tell me if you think this was deserving of censure. So the post was titled, Time to End the St. Patrick's Day Parade and the Al Smith Dinner, by Monsignor Charles Pope. The time for happy, clappy, light-hearted engagement for our culture may be nearing an end. Sometimes, it takes a while to understand that what used to work no longer works. Let me get more specific. Decades ago, the Al Smith dinner was a time for Republicans and Democrats to bury the hatchet, even if only temporarily, and come together to raise money for the poor and to emphasize what unites us rather than what divides us. But in the old days, the death of 50 million infants was not what divided us. We were divided about lesser things, such as how much of the budget should go to defense and how much to social spending. Reasonable men might differ over that. But now we are being asked to raise toasts and to enjoy a night of frivolity with those who think it is acceptable to abort children by the millions each year, with those who think anal sex is to be celebrated as an expression of love and that LGBTQIA I equals intersexual and A equals asexual is actually a form of sanity to which we should tip our hat and with those who stand foursquare against us over religious liberty. Now the St. Patrick's Parade is becoming a parade of disorder, chaos, and fake unity. Let's be honest. St. Patrick's Day nationally has become a disgraceful display of drunkenness and foolishness in the middle of Lent that more often embarrasses the memory of Patrick than honors it. In New York City in particular, the parade is devolving into a farcical and hateful ritual of the faith that St. Patrick preached. It's time to cancel the St. Patrick's Day parade and the Al Smith dinner and all the other Catholic traditions that have been hijacked by the world. Better for Catholics to enter their churches and get down on their knees on St. Patrick's Day to pray in reparation for the foolishness and to pray for this confused world to return to its senses. Let's go do adoration and pray the rosary and the Divine Mercy Chaplet unceasingly for this poor old world. But don't go to the parade. Stay away from the Al Smith dinner and all that old school stuff that hangs on in a darkened world. And as for St. Patrick's Day... It's time to stop wearing the green and instead take up the purple of Lent and mean it. Enough of the celebration of stupidity, frivolity, and drunkenness that St. Patty's Day has become. We need penance now, not foolishness. We don't need parades and dinner with the people who scoff at our teachings, insist we compromise, use us for publicity, and make money off of us. We're being played for and are fools. End the St. Patrick's Parade. End the Al Smith Dinner and all other such compromised events. Enough now. Back to church. Wear the purple of Lent. And if there is going to be a procession, let it be Eucharistic and penitential for the sins of this age.
for the sake of his sorrowful passion, have mercy on us and on the whole world. How say you? This post, this inspiring bit of Catholic writing, this is what the Archdiocese of Washington pulled down. With no explanation, just down the memory hole it goes. Why? Because it preaches Christ crucified? Because that's what it is. Because it doesn't equate theology with politics? Because that's what they're doing. The politics of political correctness. The maintenance of relationship between the princes of the church and the princes of the secular world must be maintained at all costs. We have to throw a pinch of incense before their craven gods. If we fail to honor them, or if at least, at the very least, we fail to avoid speaking out against their perverse desires, we must be punished by those who claim to wear the mantle of Christ. A friend related to me that after this article on St. Patrick's Day Parade and the Al Smith dinner was censored, Monsignor Pope found himself responding in the comments section of another post to people who were showing him support. And he said, quote, Bless you all for your prayers and encouragement. I hope you will understand if I cannot continue to post your comments on the parade article here. I will read them, but cannot post them. I will send you an email of gratitude. I ask your charity and understanding for the Archdiocese of Washington, which has always generously sponsored this blog and has been supportive of our conversations. I also hope you will understand if I cannot explain why it was removed. I am a loyal son of the Church, and I love my Archdiocese. Monsignor Pope on 1 Peter 5 in the last three days, we have featured two of your pieces of writing. In fact, my write-up of your recollection of the satanic manifestation of someone who was possessed and began crying out about Christ torturing them while you consecrated the Eucharist during a traditional Latin Mass is the biggest post we've had in the last seven days. Tens of thousands of people have read it because they're hungry for truth, because they understand that we're fighting evil. You are welcome, Monsignor Pope, to have your blog in the pages of 1 Peter 5. I would be happy to have you write for us. We won't censor you. We'll let you speak the truth. We have hundreds of thousands of page views a month. The word will get out. I know you probably would get in trouble with Cardinal Whirl 
He doesn't like it when people speak the truth in his diocese. But guess what, bishops? It's not your game anymore. Recently, in his speech in Oxford, Bishop Athanasius Schneider, who said we are in the fourth great crisis of the church, comparable only to the Arian crisis in the fourth century, which almost toppled the bishops of the world completely into heresy. He said, thank God for the internet, because it allows our ideas to get out in ways they never could before. Because orthodoxy is being persecuted from within. Pope St. Pius X warned us that it was coming with modernism. Catholic prophets, approved prophecy, have told us for centuries that it would happen, that heresy and schism would fill the church. But it's scriptural. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, beginning in passage 25, we have this warning. And now behold, I know that you all, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no longer. Therefore I call you to witness this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I have not shrunk from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Take heed to yourselves and to the whole flock in which the Holy Spirit has placed you as bishops to rule the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will get in among you. Among you, the bishops. See, Paul is talking about the bishops. Wolves among the bishops. And they will not spare the flock. And from among your own selves, men will rise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Watch, therefore, and remember that for three years, night and day, I did not cease with tears to admonish every one of you. We have been warned since the beginning that this day would come. And we know Pope Benedict saw it coming. During his installation mass, the mass when he had the pallium imposed and the conferral of the fisherman's ring, which was Sunday, April 24th, 2005, he said the following, which I think to many people was cryptic at the time. Quote, one of the basic characteristics of a shepherd must be to love the people entrusted to him, even as he loves Christ whom he serves. Feed my sheep, says Christ to Peter, and now, at this moment, he says it to me as well. Feeding means loving, and loving also means being ready to suffer. Loving means giving the sheep what is truly good, the nourishment of God's truth of God's word, the nourishment of his presence, which he gives us in the blessed sacrament. My dear friends, at this moment I can only say, pray for me, that I may learn to love the Lord more and more. Pray for me, that I may learn to love his flock more and more. In other words, you, the Holy Church, each one of you, and all of you together, 
pray for me, that I may not flee for fear of the wolves. Let us pray for one another, that the Lord will carry us, and that we will learn to carry one another. For years people talked about the wolves. What did he mean? Who was he talking about? I submit to you that he was referencing the book of Acts, the wolves that would rise up amongst the bishops of God, that would teach perversions, that would take the faithful away from the church, even while appearing to be a part of it. And here we are. You know, while I was in the process of recording this podcast, which I've re-recorded now twice, because things have happened since I started. Recorded once, recorded again a second time today. Hoping I'm going to get it out the door today, because it's pressing and it's timely. A friend sent me a message and said that Brandon Vogt's article about the inside scoop on what's going on with Bishop Sheen has disappeared from his website. I went to look, and it's a 404. Monsignor Pope's post has been pulled. For whatever reason, Brandon Vogt's post has been pulled. Someone is exerting pressure to make this story die down. I don't have a legal team. My website, much as I want it to, doesn't even yet pay me, despite all the time that I spend 60, 80 hours a week working on it. If this message disappears with no explanation, trust me when I tell you it's because I was threatened. Hopefully it won't come to that. But I'm not taking this down unless something happens that threatens my livelihood and my family and our well-being. So you'll know if things go missing that that's what happened. I'm telling you now. Because I won't be able to tell you later. They might be able to say, you're under a gag order, you can't talk about this. Fine. Good luck erasing everyone's memory. I know it sounds paranoid, but two things that I've referenced during this podcast have disappeared in 24 hours. Under compulsion, at least in one case, we know. They're afraid of the truth, guys. Bishop Sheen had it right. The temptation of the church over the century, whenever it started, the vision that Pope Leo XIII had that the devil would have a hundred years, I respectfully submit to you that we are in that hundred years, and I don't know when it ends. But it's ugly. Hold fast. The passage from which our website derives its name, 
holds more true than ever. Brothers, be sober and watch, because your adversary the devil goeth about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist ye strong in faith. Be strong in faith. You're listening to the One Peter Five podcast. Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition. So we had our biggest day ever yesterday with over 43,000 page views in one day. Now something that I'm trying to do on the back end of the site is take a look every day at the statistics and see which stories are really catching people's attention. There are some themes that have risen to the top now that we've been doing this for a little while. Stories about Islam. People want to know what's going on. Why is the Islamic State doing the stuff that it's doing and how big of a threat is it here at home? And they're also, to be frank with you, they're looking for honest answers about Islam, not ecumenical ones. It makes a difference. People can sense the truth, so they want to hear someone explaining more about what they already know, not telling them that what they know is false. It matters. There's a void to be filled. And to be honest with you, we don't need to own this side of the story. Jihad Watch is out there doing great stuff. William Kilpatrick's doing great stuff when he writes for Crisis Magazine. We have Andrew Bezad. But there's a lot of room for more people to be covering Islam and what it really believes. So maybe at some point in the not-too-distant future, people will wake up and start talking about that. The second thing, and you're not going to be surprised by this because we've tied this together before, is spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare being a big deal. And I'm going to tie that into actually the third thing because they really go together, which is anytime we talk about the activity of the demonic in the world. So spiritual warfare is geared toward the demonic, but specifically posts that we've had about the Black Mass that's coming up in the Civic Center in Oklahoma City. And this week in particular, the the post uh, that I wrote about, and actually it was about Monsignor Charles Pope recounting a story of when he was celebrating Mass 15 years ago and during the consecration, someone who was clearly tormented by a demon began crying out, asking Jesus why he was torturing them, making bestial noises, and eventually running out of the church. And poor Monsignor Pope, who was celebrating the traditional Latin Mass and therefore facing the altar, was unable to turn around and see where this guttural, inhuman voice was coming from, crying about Christ tormenting them. But it was a reminder once again that Satanists and demons believe in the Eucharist a lot more than we do. 
there's a reason why they try to get consecrated hosts for the Black Mass. And in one of the interviews I saw with whoever's responsible for the scheduled Black Mass in Oklahoma City, they said, well, obviously this is the body of Christ. (laughs) Obviously? I wish. You know, there's polling data in the 18 to 45 demographic, which isn't really a demographic. It's two squished together, but, you know, from the 1990s. But still, it shows that 70% of Catholics in the 18 to 45-year-old age group do not believe that the Eucharist is anything more than a symbol. But the demons know what it is. There's a reason why they prompt people to desecrate it. So when we talk about these stories, these are the ones that get shared. These are the ones that bring in the traffic. These are the ones that people talk about. And I think I know why. I talked about it in the monologue, but it's... We all sense that this warfare is heating up, especially in the last year or two. We just have this feeling like the veil has grown thin. The last episode of the podcast, I talked to Father Richard Heilman. And I played a little intro audio from the movie The Usual Suspects, which I don't necessarily recommend. Um, Not a wholesome family film. But I saw it many years ago, and there was a great quote that always stuck with me and Kevin Spacey plays this character has sort of a dual identity and I won't do any spoilers for those of you who will watch the film but when he's talking about one of the really bad villains that is the sort of chief antagonist in the story he prefaces his story by saying the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he didn't exist and that's the usual M.O. for the devil and his minions. We're not here. Just go ahead. Do what you want. Follow your inclinations and your desires and your passions. And we'll give you a little nudge here and there, but we don't want you thinking about us. Because if you're thinking about us, you might be thinking about him. God. The other guy. Well, that's changed. Something has changed. These little creeps that like to hide they're coming out into the open their activity is far more apparent and I'm not just talking about the behavior that we see of other human beings in our society and in cultures around the world because that's part of it people are sensing them seeing them shadow figures out of the corner of their eye strange happenings and bumps in the night, things getting in the way of successful prayer, interfering with healthy marital relationships, or parenting of children, distractions at mass, and then all of the disruption that's going on within the church It's difficult sometimes to make sure that you're not looking too much into things. But it's there. There's this subtext all the time. It's there. And every once in a while, something extraordinary happens. 
And if you know anybody who has a tendency to be able to perceive the supernatural at a level that most people can't, and I think a bunch of us know someone like this, not everybody, but if there's anyone in your life who's ever seen angels or demons, and we know that can happen, happen to the saints, Sure, it happened to a lot of people who never became saints, so we never heard their stories. But ask them, if you know them, what's going on? They'll tell you, something's up. So for the rest of us who don't have those experiences, and thank God that we don't because not pleasant, we still have a sense that something ramping up and I hear it again and again and again and again from Catholics that I know what's going on in the world is it the end times you know is the antichrist coming is the chastisement coming is there going to be some kind of you know natural disaster what what's going on people are really wondering this and yes it's happened before there have always been periods of time where people have asked these questions, but there's something about now. There's, there are very specific things that seem to be pointing in the direction that now could be a real time where God will remind us of our lack of repentance in ways that we will not find pleasant. And if we're fortunate, it won't happen right now. But it doesn't mean we're not called to repent, and it doesn't mean that we're not called to be ready. Memento mori, remember your death. We're always called to that. And in a way, I think it might be better for us to get squeezed a little bit. Not that it's going to be fun. Oh my goodness, I have small children. But when the pressure's on, faithfulness increases. Anybody who's ever gone on a pilgrimage knows this. Things always go awry, and you're lacking resources, or you're getting lost, or you're in a strange country, and you know, you're dealing with military police, and you don't know if you're ever going to find your way to where you're going, or you're ever going to get there in one piece. And You pray a lot. You pray unceasingly. And you begin to realize that that's part of the journey of the pilgrimage is being utterly dependent on God because you're not in control. Well, we're on spiritual pilgrimage right now together. And all of us, no matter what's going on, are marching toward the parousia, toward the end times, toward the eschaton. We probably won't see them in our lifetime, but we might. I've actually asked one of our writers who has knowledge and experience has been studying Catholic prophecy for 30 years to compose an essay sort of on Prophecy 101 because it's very easy right now to get caught up because of the fears and worries that we have in the wrong kinds of things there's a lot of prophecy out there and not all of it is approved and not all of it is from God 
And we need to be careful and have discernment of spirits and make distinctions. So we're trying to put together some resources on our side to help people to be critical as they evaluate this. But I'm not going to dissuade anybody from thinking that something is going on. It certainly seems to be something going on. And I think those are those those feelings that people have, they're the reason why these are the stories we're publishing that are resonating. And it's not that people don't appreciate the other educational pieces that we're doing, because I think those are important too. But people are hungry for answers. I am. Are you? I wonder every day what's coming next. I wonder every day what's around the corner. Sometimes I just look up at the sky and I'm looking almost for a sign because I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop because I know that God is only going to put up with our garbage for so long. So we'll continue to the best of our ability to provide things that are of value there. When I wrote that post, sort of highlighting what happened when Father Monsignor Pope was celebrating the Mass and this demon sort of presented itself through a person, manifested itself in a very verbal way during the liturgy. I thought it was an interesting and illustrative story. I did not expect it to become the number one story that we would run this week. But hands down, it is. I know you want to know. You want to know what is going on. You want to dive deeper. I do too. So, we'll do our best to do it together. And as always, let's pray for each other. Community prayer, mutual prayer. Even if we're not together, even if we're not in the same physical space, it's a tremendously powerful thing. Having a society of people praying for each other is life-changing. I've experienced that in other ways. So if all of the readers and participants, the community of 1 Peter 5, could all begin praying for each other, that's a powerful gift. And ask God to give us guidance and wisdom. It's the thing we're all thinking. We're all begging God for his providence and protection. And I can assure you, he's with us. You have been listening to the 1 Peter 5 Podcast, Episode 3. This has been a production of Signo Media, copyright 2014, all rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at www.1peter5.com. That's www.1peter5, all spelled out, all one word, dot com. You can join us on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1peter5 and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash 1peter5. If you feel that we have provided you something of value, please hit our donate page and make a contribution. It not only helps pay for web hosting and the fine content we provide, 
but keeps us stocked with fresh socks and underwear, which is a corporal work of mercy for everybody involved. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks for listening.